You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, queens. Hey. Hey, girls. So, (laughs) long-time listeners of the show know that we usually do a summer break. That's right. Burnout is real, even when it's something you love. I know. Yeah, Yeah. you need a break. We didn't want to leave you guys high and dry for all of this. Exactly. Over the summer, we're going to be featuring a few different things. Yeah, you might have heard a couple of our classic Patreon episodes. We'll put them on the feed. Yeah, that's right. And our Patreon episodes might be a little bit different, like the formatting might be a little bit different, but we think you're going to love them. Right. You you might have also heard an episode from another podcast that we might recommend. We have a couple of shows we're going to feature on the feed that we think you'll love while we take a little break. We hope you enjoy the show. And let's raise a glass. And as always... Y'all, we curse a little bit. (laughs) So if you don't like strong language in your history, this may not be the show for you. No, Nathan's got a potty mouth, (laughs) dude. Cheers, bitches. (laughs) ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. GM. I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Jeff Roberts. And this is GM from from Decrypt. This podcast is a conversation. One each episode with the biggest names in crypto. And you're definitely going to want to hear what they have to say. But Jeff, what are we going to ask them about? Well, Dan, I thought we could start with NFTs. Oh, yeah, NFTs. I heard NFTs are DOA. Or maybe they're just MIA. Yeah, and what about the battle between BTC and ETH? (laughs) Well, was that too many acronyms for one trailer? Don't worry. We'll talk through all this and more on our new show, GM from Decrypt. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single one. GM. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. So welcome to the show, everyone. Today we will explore the amazing life and questionable legacy of one of France's most powerful queens, depending on who you ask. A woman who is often called the wicked Italian queen of France. Today's subject and the last great mind of season two is none other than the notorious Catherine de' Medici. Catherine was a queen, a mother, and for nearly half a century she was the queen mother and de facto leader of France. And both of those aspects are something I definitely want to look into in this episode. Catherine as queen and as mother. For those of you that may not know, in most countries, Russia seemingly being the exception, when a foreign and extra-familial queen is widowed, their role changes drastically. 
As I mentioned, Catherine de' Medici would become queen mother, a regent, and continue to have a dynamic role and influence over her children's reigns, essentially reigning herself. Of course, the alternative to this is the childless widow like our old friend Catherine de Berganza from the Charlie II saga. Since she did not produce an heir, her title became queen consort after Charles II's death. Her influence, if ever really great, was greatly diminished. Catherine de' Medici's power, however, was greatly bolstered by the death of her husband. Like others we have covered, she was never meant to rule, never expected to actually wield power, and yet she fucking did. She wasn't French, but some would say she made France a little better. Others would definitely say she made it a lot worse. For me, this is one of those subjects that gets me really excited. I get to discuss the mess that was the French Wars of Religion, a dash of the Protestant Reformation, and I even get to bullshit about one of my favorite wars, the War of the Three Henrys. Which really is just a war that involves three people named Henry. And trust me, we will find out how Catherine knows all of these hanks as the show goes on. So Catherine, a wicked queen, a weak pawn. Either way, she was on the chessboard for sure. As we get ready to explore the Italian woman that took 16th century France by storm, I want to reiterate the point that much of her role, her influence, and her legacy is subject to the text you read. Some regard her as the actor, few others discard her to the margins. From the start, I will say that Catherine was a force, a great mind. She is often credited with bringing Italian culinary styles to France, even the fork. Historian Priscilla Clark notes, quote, The winds of culinary change blew from Italy whence arrived Catherine de' Medici in 1535, trailing in her wake artists of all sorts, not the least of which were her Florentine cooks. More modern researchers note, however, that this is most likely a gastronomic myth, but I have little doubt that she may have popularized a great deal of Italian traditions in France, including side-saddle riding. But like her gastronomical legacy, was her power, her reign, a reality or myth? I guess we shall see, and since we discussed food, I guess we might as well discuss drinks. Since Catherine is actually Caterina, an Italian, like me, I had to drink one of my favorite beers for this episode, Peroni Azzurro. This is actually my least favorite Peroni, but it is the only one you can get in the U.S. If you ever find yourself in my favorite boot-shaped peninsula, then be sure to explore all the tasty styles of beer that Peroni has to offer. God, I wish I could be rating one of those right now. Don't get me wrong, I still love this stuff. It reminds me of my bartending days before my college bartending days, at a local SOI Sons of Italy club, where I was first introduced and actually tasted my first Peroni. And we will just go ahead and ignore the math on that one. And don't worry, I'm sure I will find plenty of time in this saga to enjoy some French cocktails as well. But today I will be rating a different Italian drink on this episode, as I think I already rated Peroni in a previous show. And it is my philosophy that if life gives you lemons, fuck lemonade, make limoncello. So let's get to it. Today's subject, this season's Catherine, is one with a legacy that swings back and forth across the spectrum of good and evil. In the end, it will be for you to decide whether Catherine de' Medici was truly a wicked queen that terrorized and oppressed all those that opposed her, a misunderstood monarch who did her very best to rule a fracturing nation, or even quite possibly just irrelevant. I don't tend to buy into that last one, but it will definitely be worth exploring on this episode of DGMH. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me, it's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Catherine de' Medici was born April 13, 1519, into Medici nobility, which was something relatively new, papal-backed, and always kind of hanging on by a thread. 
Her father was Lorenzo de' Medici, not the magnificent one, but the Duke of Urbino. Her mother, Madeline, was a French countess. Within a month of her birth, both of her parents would die, and her fate would be up in the air. She would be passed around to and by various players, live in a convent for a period of time, and even have her life threatened by Florentine Republicans who would overthrow the Medici again. During a siege to reclaim Florence, the people supposedly called for Catherine to, quote, be killed and exposed naked and chained to the city walls, with some even saying she should be handed over to the soldiers to be used for their sexual gratification. What the fuck, Florence? Fuck you. I mean, I love the city, don't get me wrong, but that was kind of shitty. Well, luckily that didn't happen. The French king, Francis I, called for her to be raised at the French court, but in the end, her uncle, who just happened to be the Pope, became her advocate and caretaker. Later, Pope Clement VII, who was preoccupied with the rapid expansion of the Protestant Reformation, the true backdrop of this story, negotiated a favorable marriage proposal to the second son of France, named Henry, who had actually recently been released from captivity in Spain. Now that is actually a pretty cool story. A quick tangent here, King Francis I of France was captured in one of the many battles of the so-called Italian Wars, which really were just about Italy and never between Italy and someone else. They were typically between the Holy Roman Emperor, that is to say the Habsburgs, and the French Valois, a subject of our story today. After this war, Francis was only released from captivity when he agreed to have his two sons basically held hostage until peace was negotiated, and a literal king's ransom was paid. Sometime after their release, Henry's older brother would die during a tennis accident, making Henry himself the heir to the throne of France, and swiftly elevating Catherine's position after their 1533 wedding. Although King Francis I and Catherine were relatively close, especially once she began fulfilling her, quote, royal duties, she and her husband were not. In fact, King Henry II spent just about all of his non-breeding time with his beloved mistress Diane de Portier, and I guess that still counts as breeding time. And Diane is a character that will soon present us with a glimmering moment of Catherine's influence and power. Upon becoming king in 1547, he continued his father's wars in Italy until the Peace of Cateau-Cambrai. Cambrese? Cambrai. Eh. Was signed in 1559. After that, all parties went about persecuting Protestants instead of killing each other. The one thing that these two Catholic entities seemed to agree upon was that they hated the Reformed dissenters more than they hated themselves. Henry II was especially famous for executing his heretical enemies. Now, I have no doubt Catherine's marriage was indeed a lonely one. But it was about to get far lonelier after Henry died in a jousting accident celebrating the very treaty that ended years of war. Catherine, a surprising believer in the occult, actually was said to have dreamt that Henry would die, and it was even predicted by her close friend and advisor, Nostra fucking Domus. But he jousted, he died, and now Catherine gets to be great. Well, maybe. What happens next, much like most of Catherine de' Medici's story, is up for interpretation. Stum- Stum? Some historians paint a picture of a broken queen taking the reins of government to ensure the stability of France and the power of her Valois sons. Thalwa being the ruling dynasty of France, while others tell a tale of a nefarious queen, a mother who refused to relinquish her hold on power. Leonie Frida also notes that, quote, due to a series of dynastic accidents and dexterous manipulation of her opportunities, Catherine de' Medici, the 41-year-old Italian queen of France, now found herself de jure as well as de facto ruler of the kingdom. When Catherine seized power, one of the first things she did was rid herself of an old obstacle. After Henry's death, Diane de Portier was done. 
her say diminished, and her role at court done away with. Interesting side note, the two were actually cousins. As Lady Mistress, and someone I'm sure we'll cover on our Facebook group's Mistress Mondays, Diane had amassed great wealth and power at Henry's court, essentially serving as his closest confidant and a very successful patron of the arts. Once in power, Catherine ejected her from court, took back all the crown jewels that her husband gave to his mistress, and seized her most lavish properties. Diane would live out her days in her Anae estate, where she rested until fucking French revolutionaries urban, urbaned? Urbaned. Fucking urbaned? Ugh. Opened her tomb and desecrated her corpse, tossing her remains into a mass grave. Had the same thing not happened to her grave, Catherine, I'm sure, would have loved this. Well, let's keep rolling. So which is it gonna be? Was Catherine the reluctant or ruthless regent? My research shows me that Catherine enjoyed having power, who wouldn't, I mean I would, but was not necessarily power hungry, instead her interests were driven by protecting her family, her children, and her kingdom. A kingdom that A wasn't really hers, and B was on the brink of chaos. Jumping back to King Francis I for a quick second, we better discuss how religious war came to dominate 16th century France, and Catherine's life in the first place. Of course, we don't have time to get into all the mess of the Protestant Reformation, the dogma, the doctrinal differences of Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, and more and more and more. For today, it will suffice to say that the brand of Reformed Church that came into fashion in France was tied to the teachings of Jean Calvin, a French guy who pissed off the King of France, fled to Geneva, paralleled Martin Luther in reforming the Roman Catholic Church, was big on predestination, and was a little off and certainly not liked by the French government. However, his teachings and beliefs would return to France with a fiery vengeance. It is also worth noting that the spread of Calvinist reform pushed Henry II's France toward peace with Philip II's Spain, again with the signing of the Peace of Cateau-Cambrai in 1559. Basically, the two Catholic kings decided that their hatred of each other was dwarfed by their hatred of Protestants, no doubt fearing that the spread of Protestantism would only undermine their own power. Really, I only bring this up as Philip II is going to be a mischievous little shit throughout most of Catherine's story, always stirring the pot in France. In terms of religious makeup, by Catherine's day, around 40% of the French nobility had actually converted to Calvinism, and reform dominated urban areas, especially in the south, but Paris was iffy. And, as we have noted on the show, French Calvinists are called Huguenots. And we're gonna just go ahead and say Huguenots, because it's easier for me. And fuck Huguenots, that's just not gonna work. Now, Henry II isn't really going to be that important to our story, as he got himself killed in that famous jousting accident. And since there were eight French wars of religion in total, it is worth taking a second to clear up the timeline a little bit. Catherine de' Medici ascends to real power in 1559 when she began serving as regent to her son, King Francis II, and from then on, she would be a force in France until her death in 1589. This 30-year-long period of sporadic conflict is better known as the French Wars of Religion, first breaking out in 1562. And I'd like to say that these wars were in fact all caused by religion, but there are much larger geopolitical issues at play, as well as economic motives, and above all, ego. So let's get to it. I've decided to come at this rather irregular and detached conflict not by war, but by king, as there are three different kings involved here. In doing this, we will briefly highlight how the wars dominated the reign of each king, and then the role of Catherine in each king's life. Eh, kind of like at the same time. And I warn you, the French wars of religion are a colossal shitshow, a masterpiece of madness. The French wars of religion are going to be nearly impossible for me to convey quickly in a way that makes sense. 
I mean, we have bourbons and geeses that die, only naturally to be replaced by new bourbons and geeses. We have multiple kidnapping attempts, and literally a war of three Henrys. So like I said, I'm sticking with the big picture approach here. Francis II reigned, technically from the death of his father in July 1559, to his death in December 1560. That's not a long fucking time, in case, like me, you're not very good at math. He pretty much has nothing to do with the wars of religion since he was dead when they really started up. But then there is the time where the leading Protestants under Louis Prince of Condé tried to kidnap the king from his evil advisors. Now that's fun. According to most sources and the show, The Reign, Francis II basically defaulted to his mother's wishes on policy as Catherine was effectively able to seize influence over her teenage son, and thus seize power. But Francis died, Catherine mourned yet again, and Charlie IX became king. Charles IX inherited the throne after his brother's premature death. Catherine did not hesitate to secure power as regent over the throne that now had a 10-year-old boy on it who famously cried at his coronation. Charles would reign from 1560 to 1574, but even after coming of age, his mother and others seemed to have the real power. During his tenure as king, religious war dominated France, and Catherine was forced to deal with four different outbreaks of conflict, all lasting around a year each, and all ending the exact same way. Neither side could win, so peace and toleration was conceded by the crown. But I would not say that this was something Catherine objected to, nor should it really be seen as a failing. Catherine saw peace, conciliation, and toleration as a way to move past a division and maybe just achieve unity in her fractured kingdom. And by this point, it certainly is fair to say it was her kingdom. War and all of the troubles that it begets strangled her kingdom from within and stunted its growth. Catherine knew that if France was to continue to be a dominant player in the world, internal division could not continue. After three wars and two failed peace attempts, Catherine issued the Edict of Saint-Germain, the most liberal of peace attempts to date in August 1570, which offered Protestants the rights to openly preach with limited restrictions for the very first time. But not everyone was pleased, including the uber-Catholic Guise family and the meddling Spaniard Philip II, who feared that toleration in France might lead to conflict in the Spanish Netherlands or maybe even Spain itself. Historian Mac Holt notes, quote, The Catholic warmongering Guise's worst fears came to pass when Catherine issued the Edict of St. Germain. Now this is a big statement. It is Catherine in power, it is Catherine making policy, and as we creep slowly towards appraisal, I think it is important to note that she tended to favor tolerance, peace, and above all else, stability. This triumphant peace settlement serves as a testament to Catherine's acumen as a leader, a true pragmatist. She did what was best for her kingdom regardless of her personal, very Catholic beliefs. But the Edict of Saint-Germain, which was to be cemented by the marriage of Catherine's daughter Margaret and Henry of Navarre, a leading Protestant military figure and political leader and heir to the Navarre's throne, would be short-lived as St. Bartholomew's Day approached. The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre is yet another epic shitshow within the greater context of an even more epic shitshow. Short version. The Edict of St. Germain was to be affirmed by the marriage of Catherine's daughter Margot and the future king of Navarre, Henry Bourbon. This was bound to be the social event of the decade and might just allow Catherine to accomplish her aims of lasting peace. Depending on who you believe, some would say she didn't give a shit about lasting peace, but I would disagree. Anyways, big party. Every leading Protestant was invited. If you were a big name, you were there. And they fucking killed them all just to, quote, remove the influence had by people like Admiral de Coligny over the king. 
The shitty thing is that the Guises and Parisians used the massacre of high-ranking Protestants as a way to justify killing every Protestant in sight. First, someone tried to kill Colignier, and he lost a finger. And this was most likely the work of those fucking Guises. Then, the next day, they killed Colignier, and then killed pretty much everyone else. You know what they say, geeses of a fucking feather stick together. Really starting on August 24th, the chaos took Paris by storm. Over the next few days, the bloodshed spread across France with estimates of more than 20,000 Huguenots and accused Protestants being killed. Low-end estimates come in around 5,000, high-end a terrifying 70,000. Politique moderates, a term I will explain later, were horrified. Unity and the Edict of Saint Germain destroyed, war reignited, Henry of Navarre imprisoned. And 300 years later, Edouard de Botponçon paints a beautiful image of Catherine Grimacine as she casually walks past the piling dead Protestant bodies, which I will be sure to post on social media, wherever you follow the show. But whose fault was it? Let's take a second to look into that. Historian of the French Wars of Religion, Mac P. Holt, notes, quote, Historians have long argued that Catherine de' Medici was the principal villain, with the Guises as co-conspirators, arguing that the Queen Mother was insanely jealous of Coligny's influence over her son, Charles IX. But historians like N. M. Sutherland have tried to, quote, rescue the Queen Mother's reputation, arguing that it would have been illogical for Catherine to jeopardize her efforts at establishing peace by trying to murder the Huguenot leader in Paris just after a royal wedding. This is logical, as Catherine has to this point been a peacemaker, what Freda called a conciliator. But Frida trends towards the stance that Catherine was instead the big actor in all of this. She notes, quote, War brought only ruin to France, and peace had thus far only come as a result of exhaustion on both sides, not outright victory. She continues, quote, It is probable that Catherine understood that peace, however temporary, would give her time. With that in mind, she would present her habitual conciliatory face as she watched carefully for future opportunities to heal the wounded kingdom and bring it back under the full control of the House of Valois. I see what she is saying here. Unsurprisingly, Catherine was a pragmatist, more than willing to make pragmatic concessions when it benefited her to do so, but always waiting for the right moment to increase her power, and maybe, just maybe, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre presented her with that opportunity. If this is true, then the massacre is her abandoning that, quote, habitual conciliatory face and bearing that of the wicked Italian queen. I think the real debate on her role in the massacre comes from an effort to paint Catherine as a strong leader and forceful influence in France. She may be the villain, but that also means she was the main antagonist, the primary actor. However, Sutherland blames the Guises for the massacre and prejudiced evidence for Catherine's wicked reputation. Holt himself makes the more important point, saying, quote, There can be no doubt that whoever came up with the idea, the king and queen mother supported it. He even goes on to blame Catherine and the weak King Charles for the escalation of violence around the capital. Historian Barbara Dieffendorf points out another important reality that, quote, any capable leader or thoughtful person would have known that France was on the verge of religious chaos. An action like the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre was guaranteed to spark havoc across the fractured kingdom. So was Catherine a fool to order such a barbarous undertaking? Or was she simply another Catholic zealot more than willing to spill a little Protestant blood to ensure God's will, her power, and her kingdom's, quote, rightful faith? Hell, maybe she didn't even have anything to do with it at all. Fuck if I'd know, but I will say that in this case, I think of Catherine as less of a wicked killer that called for the slaughter of innocent Protestants, and more the passive actor who foolishly supported the decisions of others, others that hoped to undermine her power in the first place. 
I would argue that this was in fact a weak point in her career. Peace had been her goal, conciliatory efforts her practice. This doesn't read like Catherine de' Medici to me at all. However, I do know that an angry Charles IX supposedly exclaimed to his council, quote, Just kill them, kill them all! Oh, what the hell, let's just blame the Guises for it all and say that Catherine didn't really give a shit if a few, I'm sorry, tens of thousands of Huguenots died. And surprise, killing the Protestant leadership didn't bring about the Valois control Catherine longed for, and after this, more religious war followed. But that wouldn't be Charles IX's problem, he died of tuberculosis in 1574. Catherine would not be so... lucky? Yeah, I don't know if that's the right word choice here, but... As we finish up this analysis of Catherine de' Medici and the French Wars of Religion, let's take a quick break and turn to this episode's Moment of the Margins. For this round's Moment in the Margins, I just had to cover one of my favorite characters in Catherine's story, who was actually one of her least favorite children, Margaret de Valois, or Margot, which is the name we will go with for reasons that will reveal themselves shortly. Margot was born May 14, 1553. She was the seventh of Catherine's ten children, and as I have stated, Margot was the bride of Henry of Navarre, with their nuptials serving as the sort of prequel to the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Funny fact, as a Protestant, Henry of Navarre was not allowed in Notre Dame. Wow, Notre Dame? Fuck me. As a Protestant, Henry of Navarre was not allowed in Notre Dame Cathedral for the wedding ceremony. So Margot was wed to a stand-in, her brother. Sounds weirder than it is, and this was actually fairly common. And during their marriage, she was known for being somewhat promiscuous, having been caught up in several extramarital affairs and scandals in the midst of the French Wars of Religion's chaos as it is. Not a great way to ensure political stability. During the War of the Three Henrys, to be covered shortly, Margot actually abandoned her husband and brother and sided with the Catholic League, another thing I will explain shortly, which in the end would lead King Henry III to imprison her for a brief period of time and have one of her lovers executed in front of her. I don't want to spoil the ending of the story, but it will suffice to say that she and her husband would meet again, but Margot's inability to produce an heir was at the very least problematic to her situation. In the end, Margot willingly had her marriage to Henry of Navarre annulled for the security of his dynasty and the stability of France. Following in Henry II's footsteps, Henry of Navarre would go and marry a wealthy Italian noblewoman, Marie de' Medici, who would in fact give him a son, the future King Louis XIII. Yes, Henry of Navarre, the future Henry IV, is Louis XIV's grandfather, but I am certainly getting ahead of myself there. Margot would return to Paris in 1605, living out the rest of her days in her house on the left bank of the Seine. Her home was known for being a center of intellect, and like her mother, Margot was an avid patron of the arts. She died in 1615 just as religious war was about to enter back into French, well I guess I should say really all of European society. Margot's most notable legacy is in Alexandre Dumas' 1845 work, La Reine Margot in which her wicked mother Catherine plays the main antagonist. Thanks to those that conspired against the future queen Marie de' Medici later down the road, a certain myth of Margot's victimhood at the expense of her mother was born in her lifetime, and it was this myth that would be the subject of Dumas' work. Margot was painted as the tragic victim of her mother's wicked scheming, which I simultaneously hate and wouldn't find that hard to believe. 
Side note, in a sort of bonus moment in the margins, Alexandre Dumas is one of the most famous authors of the 19th century, with famous works like The Three Musketeers and my favorite, The Count of Monte Cristo. You may know this, but what I didn't know, my students never know, and you may not know, is that Alexandre Dumas was black, and the son of Alexandre Dumas, a former slave and Haitian revolutionary who served alongside Toussaint Louverture in the Haitian Revolution, the only slave uprising to lead to a permanent established independent state. I can honestly say that I was never taught this bit of literary history even when studying his works, which I think is sad and extremely important to make clear. Now the book starts with the protagonist Margot, that is Margaret de Valois, on her wedding day and thus the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. The book has been made into a film three times since 1910, I have seen zero of them, zero times, and honestly I don't have time to- In this story, Dumas seems to have chosen to questionably pin the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre on Catherine de' Medici herself, who maliciously acts against those star-crossed lovers Margot and Henry. Mostly a farce of a story, the pair seem to rarely get along, but as we have seen and will yet see, there may be some truth to Catherine's role in all of this. I could say more, but I think that's enough. Margot's story has been told, but only as a fairy tale that cast our latest Catherine in a bad light. Margaret de Valois certainly would have loved that. Hell, Catherine might have too. There isn't much out there on Margot, but Nancy Goldstone's Rival Queens is a fun, somewhat fanciful take on the mother-daughter pair. Well, let's move out of the margins back to Margot's mother, our wicked Italian queen of France. As we move out of the margins, and in case you forgot how messy European royal politics are, Charles IX's airless death meant that his brother, the newly elected king of Poland-Lithuania, was now King Henry III of France. In a sort of thanks-but-I-got-a-better-offer kind of way, Henry swiftly left Poland, stopped in Venice for a good time, and then entered France to be king. And war pretty much picked right back up. So eight religious wars, that means four wars for Charlie and four wars for Hank, and all eight for Kathy. Henry, however, presents us with a unique twist on all of this, as he, unlike pretty much everyone else, except debatably Catherine, was what's called a politique. I used the word earlier, so let's take a second to explain it. A politique is just like it sounds, someone who puts political interest of the state above religious beliefs. Historically speaking, this was quite French. Always putting France first was kind of their staple move. The French even once captured a pope and created their own papacy in Avignon for a while. So yeah, like I said, it's a very French thing to do. Henry, however, is one of those rare gems in 16th century France that actually believed that his kingdom should come first, as opposed to tearing it apart in the name of variations of the same exact fucking god. Plus, the French populace was starting to get a little sick of all this religious war. I would actually argue that Catherine, with endless and equally fruitless attempts at pacifying her rivals, was also quite politique. But unlike every other one of her children, Henry was actually old enough to reign. Obviously, this pushed Catherine to the sidelines a little bit, but not completely out of the game. All this politique shit aside, there was still one problem. Well, two actually. The Guises and their uber-Catholic ways, and Philip II of Spain, who did not like all this toleration talk on his borders. The pair would continuously work together to prompt war, the latter often funding the former, to end Catherine's plans for peace. As Wars 5, 6, and 7 followed the basic standard of its predecessors, peace fails, war breaks out, no one could win, and peace was made again, we won't spend too much time going into each of them. However, issues in France reached a boiling point in 1584 when the king's last younger brother died. 
This left the infertile Henry III without a male heir, which was the only kind of heir France could have, thanks to something called Salic Law. Short version, only men could sit on the French throne. Sexist, yes. The law, yes. The real issue here is that Henry III's brother-in-law, Henry of Navarre, and Margot's husband was now the heir to France. And once again, he was Protestant. Yes, after his life-saving conversion to Catholicism the day of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, Henry escaped captivity and converted back to Protestantism. Interestingly, Henry of Navarre was born a Catholic and converted to Protestantism during the earliest days of the Reformation in France. So that really makes four conversions in one lifetime. And I certainly can't imagine there ever being another, he said, sarcastically. Now, the idea of a Protestant sitting on the French throne was something that no one but the Protestants really desired. Parisians hated it. The Guises hated it. Philip II feared it. But Henry III really didn't have a huge problem with it. And that's the problem. The Catholics, who had recently formed a league to prevent a Protestant succession to the French throne, which they cleverly called the Catholic League, planned to oppose the decision by backing Henry of Navarre's Catholic uncle, who was really old as shit. This was basically a way to ensure the idea that Henry Duke of Guise would hold power in France. So in 1585, surprise, war broke out. A war between Henry III of Valois, France, Henry of Navarre, his heir, and Henry Duke of Guise, epic pain in the ass. In what I consider to be a catastrophe that could only happen in the chaotic French wars of religion. The War of the Three Henrys was on, and this one, unlike all previous wars, wasn't going to be a quick one to two year conflict. No, this one was going to rage on for more than a decade, and by the end of it all, only one Henry would survive, and our great mind and subject for today, Catherine, would be long dead. Oh, how I wish I had time to say more about this, but this is Catherine's story, and I haven't said much about her recently. At the very least, Henry III seemed capable of ruling, but had little interest in it. Thus, it was left to Catherine de' Medici to run France, but Henry, Catherine's favorite son, by the way, was not as childish as his predecessors. He ignored Catherine's attempts to create a foreign marriage alliance, instead choosing to marry a French noblewoman that he seemed to love. It was clear that Catherine did not wield the same degree of control over Henry that she had over Francis and Charles. During the Seventh War of Religion, a 59-year-old Catherine personally traveled to the south of France to pacify the Protestants. She made several concessions to Huguenots, but believed that France was, quote, on the eve of general revolt. The Venetian ambassador, Girolamo Lippomano, praised her efforts, saying, quote, She is an indefatigable princess, which, by the way, I just learned meant unrelenting, born to tame and govern a people as unruly as the French. As war progressed, an aging Catherine watched as Paris fell into chaos once more when her people rose up. Parisians erected barricades in what historians cleverly call the Day of the Barricades. And they refused to take orders from anyone but Henry Duke of Guise. At Catherine's urging, her son King Henry III made peace with the Parisians and the Guises. But by 1588, Catherine was confined to her bed with a lung infection. Henry personally took the time to thank his mother for all that she had done for France, as wars seemed to be coming to a close, except for the fact that Henry of Navarre was still out there with a very large Protestant army. Henry III, however, had a plan. As Catherine rested in a nearby room, Henry III invited the Duke of Guise to his chambers, where he had his 45 guards stab and kill the Duke of Guise, his entourage, and his cardinal brother. He immediately visited his mother after the assassination, saying, quote, Please forgive me, Monsieur de Guise is dead. He will not be spoken of again. I have had him killed. I have done to him what he was going to do to me. 
Following what she considered to be one of the most tragic events of her life, an aged and broken Catherine decided to visit an old friend in her last days, the would-be claimant to the French throne, Cardinal Bourbon, who is actually currently imprisoned by King Henry III. She hoped to assure him of his imminent release, but his response made clear his opinion of her, saying, quote, Your words, madam, have led us to all this butchery. A defeated Catherine departed the room in tears. She died just four days later. But the war still raged, and Paris was once again in the hands of the Catholic League, the king not even able to enter his capital. I suppose we should wrap this up by wrapping up these French wars of religion with a quick and of course sarcastic glance at the War of the Three Henrys, like I said, an epic shit show if there ever was one. Moving very quickly here, eight months after Catherine's death, King Henry III was assassinated by a Catholic monk. Why, you ask? Well, to stop the crown's enemies, Henry III turned to a surprising ally for help, his Protestant heir, Henry of Navarre. The pair went and laid siege to Paris, and this royally pissed off a radical Catholic monk named Jacques Clement, who thought it was best to go and stab his king. So two Henrys are dead, only one remains, will he be king? Yes, in an even shorter version, Protestant Henry of Navarre decided to pull a very reliable beaver out of his hat, and convert to Catholicism once more. Supposedly saying, quote, Paris is worth a mass, he decided that being the king of France was worth being Catholic. In the end, Henry acted as I believe Catherine de' Medici would have. He did what was politique, what was best for France. He sacrificed his personal beliefs for peace. Henry IV was finally crowned King of France after years of chaos in 1594, having at this point claimed the throne for five years. In 1598, he issued the famous Edict of Nantes, which offered favorable toleration for French Protestants that lasted until the reign of his grandson, King Louis XIV. It's interesting that peace was only achieved after toleration was guaranteed, toleration that Catherine had tried to implement in France decades earlier. Of Catherine, Henry IV once remarked, quote, I ask you, what could a woman do? Left by the death of her husband with five little children in her arms and two families of France who were thinking of grasping the crown, our own, the Bourbons and the Guises. Was she not then compelled to play strange parts to deceive the first one and then the other in order to guard as she did her sons, who successfully reigned through the wise conduct of that shrewd woman? Honestly, I'm surprised she never did worse. For reasons unknown to me, Henry IV seemed determined to spare Catherine's legacy from harm. He saw her for what she was, a cunning pragmatist and a caring mother who ruled over a kingdom of assholes. But did Catherine de Medici do anything but wage war in her reign? Well, actually, yes. As a child of the later years of the Italian Renaissance, Catherine followed her beloved late father-in-law's lead, acting as France's leading patron of the arts. In the midst of nearly endless chaos and war, Catherine still led the charge of France's cultural advancement. Most historians note that she presided over the late French Renaissance. As Queen Mother, that is, when she had the most power, she held massive court festivals and tournaments known as Magnificences. Magnificence? Magnificence? Uh, that's never going to sound right. Turning back to Catherine's biographer, Leonie Freda, she notes, quote, Catherine more than anyone inaugurated the fantastic entertainments for which later French monarchs also became renowned. Basically, she threw big parties that showed how great, smart, and powerful she really was. But these served her politically as well. These festivals showed her subjects and rivals how magnificent the Valois dynasty truly was, even if it wasn't. Beyond this, she patroned artists like Jean Cousin the Younger and Antoine Caron. 
She commissioned portraits, massive tapestries, and scenes that covered the walls of her palaces. Although he turned down the commission, Catherine attempted to get Michelangelo himself to create a massive statue in memory of her late husband. And she commissioned Germain Pilon's Three Graces statue, which can be seen in the Louvre today. A statue that, interestingly enough, contains the heart of her husband, the late King Henry II. Ironically, it's his brain that provides us with a much more interesting story for a different day. Catherine's real legacy as a patron can be seen by every person that visits the Louvre, as it was she that commissioned the construction of the Tuileries Palace in 1564. This would be a key seat of power for French monarchs after Catherine's reign, until it was overshadowed by Louis XIV's Versailles, something I have covered extensively on the show already. But where is this magnificent palace today? Do you know? Well, the residence that Catherine commissioned really no longer stands, being mostly demolished in 1883. What is left of the grounds, the palace gardens, is more commonly known by a different name today, as the remnant gardens make up most of the landscape of the Louvre Museum. This was just one example of the architecture she commissioned, and I would say that this serves as a testament to her greatness and legacy, a legacy that unsurprisingly was tarnished by fucking French revolutionaries and it wasn't even the cool ones that tore down her palace. Now, I said I wanted to spend some time discussing Catherine's success as both a queen, or mother of her state, and a parent, or mother of her sons. Catherine once remarked at a council meeting regarding her regency on what should happen if she took ill or died. She responded to her advisors, saying, quote, All that I can say is that I shall never be too ill to supervise whatever affects the service of the king, my son. Catherine spoke directly to the king's advisers, saying, quote, I shall ask that you therefore withdraw your requests, as the case you foresee shall never arise. Here I see the words of not only a powerful woman who would not easily yield power or influence to the men around her, but also a mother that would never waver from securing the position and security of her children, in this case her young son and king. Honestly, I have read several letters between Catherine and her daughters, examined accounts of her relationships with her sons, and even her private reactions to seemingly endless loss. Catherine was a mother who would outlive and bury most of her children, and all of her sons, save only one. She experienced loss after loss, and she likely felt that only she could provide the stability to her family and her kingdom that she so desperately desired. What may seem like ruthless power grabs to some, to me, seem like the actions of an unyielding caretaker. Beyond this, which is purely my opinion, I wanted to take a second to examine what historian Catherine Crawford calls, quote, political motherhood. The very fact that Catherine de' Medici even held power in France is a testament to her abilities as a leader, as issues like Salic law and age-old notions of patriarchy legally and culturally prevented women from holding real royal power in France. Crawford puts it better than I ever could, saying, quote, Despite long-standing abilities attached to women as political actors in France, Catherine de' Medici moved into a position of political prominence, largely on her own initiative by presenting herself as a devoted wife, widow, and mother, as the basis of her political entitlement. Utilizing her conformity with accepted notions of female behavior, Catherine defended her authority, but not always her power, from an array of detractors, both individual and institutional, in order to develop motherhood as a positive political position, which was expressed in both legal precedent and representational schema. So basically, she used her position as a mother to justify her power at court and in politics, thus giving her a greater degree of power than most women in France before or after her time ever held. 
Regardless of your beliefs as to how much say Catherine had in decision-making in France, she wielded a surprising degree of power, while simultaneously managing not to piss off those old noble shitheads that couldn't bear a woman with a say. Crawford continues, quote, Her claim to power and authority rested on her ability to utilize accepted notions of female behavior and specifically her conformity with familiar and acceptable roles, which she then stretched and augmented. But always she contended that she remained within the boundaries of acceptable female behavior. That is to say, she played the system against itself. Catherine de' Medici was able to promote in very public ways, quote, that she was a good woman and particularly a good wife, widow, and mother. When she reached the peak of her power during the infancy of Charles IX, she, quote, designed to put herself in a position to protect and nurture her next royal son, and she asserted her maternal affection for her young son as the basis of her political authority as queen mother. Historians like Sutherland have argued that without Catherine's cunning leadership and ruthless pragmatism, it is unlikely that her weak children would have remained in power during this chaotic period. Catherine Crawford has painted an image of a queen, a woman, that built a position for herself in the Kingdom of France despite all the structure and tradition that acted against her. By the end of her life, the Valois would still rule, yet by the end of the French Wars of Religion, they would not. I am not really sure if that means Catherine failed, nor am I sure that it is Catherine's failure to bear. So let's move to the scale of greatness to figure it out. Let's start with the drink. Today I am rating a brand of limoncello called Bellini, a liqueur that I have actually previously made for myself, and will make again once my lemon trees step the fuck up. And by the way, mine was way better than this stuff. I don't know why, but it's fucking thick and almost syrupy. The worst suggestion I have ever received from a Total Wine employee. But like Catherine, we all make mistakes. Limoncello is one of my favorite drinks. There's nothing better than sitting in a random pizza shop in Florence and having someone show up at your table with free homemade limoncello shots. Per fucking facto. Is that Italian or Spanish? I can't remember. This limoncello is far from perfect. By three sips in, it isn't that bad, but that first sip is rough, I tell you. I feel like I'm drinking straight sugar. Honestly, I'm only going to give this two points for taste. Price was even worse. $17.99 for a fucking disappointment. There are way better bottles of limoncello on the shelves of Total Wine that are the same price if not cheaper. One point for being overpriced sugar and pissing me off. I think it is clear to say that I won't be buying this again. I will of course be returning to limoncello, but not this brand. One point for an extremely low returnability. And really, that's just because I never decided if I can give a zero on the show. Bellini Limoncello leaves the show with our lowest rating to date. If you disagree, well to each their own, but this humble podcaster is only awarding it four points and reluctantly two crowns. Now let's move to our great mind, Catherine de' Medici. Obviously, I couldn't cover every bit of Catherine's life, which is full of mystery, legend, lies, and so much more. For more on Catherine de' Medici, I would suggest Leone Frida's well-researched and very enjoyable biography, titled Catherine de' Medici, Renaissance Queen of France. Sadly, there just isn't enough written about this eclipsed Queen of France. As noted, for general European history, I always turn to John Merriman or Mary Wisner Hanks. For more on the French Wars of Religion and the Reformation in France, I would check out the works of historian Mac P. Holt. Now let's rate this great mind. Oh my god, I fucking love her. Catherine de' Medici ruled over arguably the most chaotic period in French history. The Terror was a shit show, but a short one. The French Revolution is basically an unfolding, never-ending shit show in itself, but three Henrys, even Catherine had to be a little confused by that. 
So how will she fare? That's really up to you, but here's what I think. As a leader, Catherine was able to assert control and authority over a dividing populace, constantly puppeteering those that longed for conflict. She stifled the men that would stand in her way, strived for peace, yet never was afraid to wage war. Had she been allowed to lead absolute unquestioned, then France likely would have been spared eight religious wars. But she didn't rule absolute, and that does hurt her rating. She attempted to lead, but rarely was able to ensure any lasting calm in the chaos. As a queen, she had a vision that she tried to make real, often falling short. As a mother, however, she prompted every bit of success her family could claim. I am awarding Catherine four points for being the leader France needed, but never appreciated enough to truly follow. And I have trouble knocking her for that, as every tradition in France stood in her way, and she basically said, eh, fuck it. But her greatest accomplishments always fell apart. Treaty after treaty failed. Her vision of a pacified France only came to be under the reign of King Henry IV, who I would call Catherine's true successor. She had the right idea, but lacked the agency to fully see it through. Beyond that, I would say her primary goal was the survival of the House Valois, which crumbled like a house of cards in the end, even if she did do her very best to delay it. I can only give her three points for her accomplishments, and most of those points come from the fact that she led a country that didn't want her, and she had no real claim to, for nearly half a century. But Catherine's story is quite entertaining. A return to sex, scandal, murder, more murder, massacres, monks murdering people, and not one, not two, but three Henrys. Simply put, Catherine was impressive, brilliant, and shrewd. She did what she had to and didn't really give a shit what anyone had to say about it. You can disagree, but I think hers was one of the most entertaining, albeit confounding, stories to date. Six points for entertaining me enough to make this limoncello bearable. That means Catherine sits on an uncertain 13 points and 5 crowns, but now comes the hard part. Was she a piece of shit? For me, this is the hardest call in the history of the POS curve. She wasn't a rapist, a slave owner, a genocidal maniac, or really even a hypocrite. So what do I do? In The Prince, Niccolo Machiavelli notes, To be a great prince, one must sometimes violate the laws of humanity. Well, I'd say Catherine may have lived by this philosophy. The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre would cost her greatly if it was she that called for the killings, but I don't think she did. I find it hard to pick and choose when giving her credit. I think she was more than capable of being ruthless when she needed to be, always ready to do what had to be done, a mother always protecting those for whom she was responsible, that is, her children and her kingdom. If I want to give her credit for leading France, then I have to give her some credit for at the very least letting the massacre happen. So I reluctantly am taking away two piece of shit points from Catherine de Medici. That cost her a crown, and she leaves the show with only 11 out of 18 points. But maybe, just maybe, she will find a way to redeem herself as the month continues. If you enjoyed this episode of Drinks with Great Minds in History, then please consider supporting the show by becoming a DGMH Patreon. I hope you will consider leaving the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. As I like to say, it helps. No one's quite sure how the fuck it helps, but it supposedly does. Join in the conversation at the DGMH Facebook group, and be sure to follow the show on Instagram to see how much I really do drink. Today we set out to better understand a great mind, a great woman, and dare I say it, a devoted, if not great, mother. I mean, what the fuck would I know about being a great mother? In a letter to her daughter Elizabeth, who was at the time Queen of Spain, wife of that meddling Philip II, Catherine seems to illustrate that she did not seek nor desire power, writing, quote, God has taken your father from me, and not content with that, he has deprived me of your brother, whom you know I love. 
and has left me with three little children and a divided kingdom, where there is not one man I can trust, who is not governed by private passions of his own. I had rather die than see you in my position, for fear you could not bear so many ordeals as I have had and still have. These are not the words of a ruthless tyrant or overzealous Catholic, but instead the intimate words of a mourning mother to her daughter. Maybe Catherine was a reluctant queen forced to take power in a bittersweet attempt to save her kingdom and her family. Turning once again to Freda, she notes, quote, This letter is exceptional in the way that Catherine opened her heart to her young daughter. It could be argued, then, that it proves Catherine did not seek the power she came to possess. But Freda notes, quote, Whatever the truth, she certainly protected that power jealously from anyone who threatened it, and in time she came to guard her positions with increasing vigor. Freda's words are fact, and I certainly agree with her when she says, quote, Catherine's motives, at least initially, were born out of necessity. In the end, Catherine was buried with her husband and children in St. Denis Basilica, where she rested until 1793 when those French fucking revolutionaries cast all the Valois bones into a massive pit, at least separated from the bourbons that revolutionaries so loathed. Yes, it seems that not even our wicked Italian Queen of France could evade the shit show that was the French Revolution. But what the hell, let's raise a glass to Catherine de' Medici, Queen Mother, Mother of Many, and maybe, just maybe, the wicked Italian Queen of France. Catherine's life, as Freda puts it, quote, presented a powerful mixture of bold contradictions. I'm not sure if she was a queen or a pawn, good or evil. But either way, Catherine de Medici proved to be a wickedly wonderful and entertaining woman. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Rad is killing your own opposition. And I take on rad jobs so I can get compromising material on politicians that I can use at a later date. That's rad He was a political fixer who did dirty tricks for money. Now, he's decided to tell all and bring his powerful clients down with him. He's a con man, and I think he's a pretty good con man. Some people tell you absolutely fantastical stories, and, and they turn out to be true. Rat f- from Canada Land Podcasts. Subscribe to it now. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Cheers! you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.